I'm Liz. And I'm Sasha. And this is our podcast, Ray of Blight. So we are going to be talking about song genetics, and it's kind of just a term that we kind of coined, but it doesn't really mean anything because they don't actually necessarily come from the same universe, but sometimes they do unintentionally, subconsciously, whatever. But there are only so many notes in the universe, there's only so many chords. Honestly, writing a song can be difficult, but it's really what you do with the song in your own aesthetic and whatever's the requirement of... You know, if you have somebody breathing down your neck to write a type of song, or if you're a producer and there's only so many sounds you're familiar with or you're chasing a trend, that happens. Sometimes you have writer's block and you end up writing the same song over and over. Sometimes you have writer's block and and intentionally write somebody else's existing song. Lots of weird things happen. People get influenced by their interests. Sometimes their influences are more noticeable, sometimes less so. Like you said, sometimes it's totally not a conscious thing that someone writes a song. Sometimes they write a song and then someone else tells them, oh, this sounds like blah, blah, blah. And maybe they've never even heard the original song. All right. Off to work. (laughs) Business. Get down to brass tacks. So the song Overload. Overload is a song by the Sugar Babes, currently known as Mutia, Keisha, Siobhan. They wrote it. Regular listeners. This will be old news. You can tune out for a second. But newer listeners, what you need to know is Sasha once did a five-hour Sugar Babes presentation. I, be- I believe it was five and a half hours, oh. but, you know, I, not, to, not to make myself look worse. Anyway, so I'm a big fan of Siobhan Donahue. She's, she's one of the Sugar Babes, and she sings the lead on a tune called Overload. It was kind of a big hit in most of the world. It was kind of a college hit in America, but other than that... Uh, Sugar Babes didn't really do anything besides Hole in the Head, which scraped the bottom of the top 100, and then lots of drama and chaos happened within their own lineup changes. So, Overload. It's quite the tune. Um, it's kind of got like this Middle Eastern melody to it, um, which is weird because the lyrics are a little insipid about having a crush. Um, and uh, the chorus doesn't seem that strong at first, but it kind of earworms its way in about not knowing where you're going. Uh, it's catchy. It's a catchy little tune. It's got, it's got this little uh, kind of breakbeatish like thing happening, and then this uh, this bass line, and and then there's some surf guitar happening in it. And it's very exciting. And this, I gotta say, the singing in it is really amazing. It is really, it's pretty good. For it's like a, subtle, but it's like lots of th- th- trills and. But anyway, Overload, it's, it, it's a really good tune, and it's really subtle, like you said. And <laughs> this whole episode was just us describing Overload, with, and we never actually play it. We just talk about this song. Thanks for listening. <laughs> like, how many minutes in, we're still, we haven't even made it past. I know. Well, this whole thing kind of started this, about, oh, this whole topic started because of Overload, because I started realizing that there's a billion songs that end up copying the Overload model. Now... The thing about Overload is that the bass line itself seems to be influenced by uh, Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit, um, or at least to some degree like a tango bass line, or like, um, you know, maybe Morricone, or maybe even like Ravel's Bolero, like like there's like a do, 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 and that's all you know about the song so far, because that's all we keep referencing, <laughs> other than it's a really subtle and good song, sung by a bunch of 15 and 16 year olds. 
So it kind of has this weird semi-sinister feel to it because it, it, because it has that angular melody going between two chords over and over. Now, this <laughs> Wait, I gotta interrupt you and say, quit leaning on the table because it's making jittery noises. Listeners, can you hear this? That's not the table. That's my arthritis. <laughs> My 24-year-old arthritis. Every time I go to like edit our podcast, I can hear Sasha leaning on the table. You get excited. <laughs> I sure do get all excited when we talk about the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus and he's coming again. He's coming again. All right, Book of Mormon, quit leaning on the table. Thank you. Thank you. I have officially turned in to my father. Okay, carry on. <laughs> so overloads Without a, leaning on the table. So Overload's a really good song. It's really subtle. Thanks for listening. Uh, no, it's... Okay, so Overload. Good song. Teenagers. Uh, rapid little beats. And then a poop, 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 poop. And, uh, no, no, it ended up being a, a bit popular. Um, there's some other songs that kind of, bef- that precede it, that kind of have, like, the roots of it, besides, uh, um, possible bolero-ness and possible, um, Jefferson Airplane. Uh, there's a tune by the Jacksons when, uh, they were in their wilderness period, where uh, I think Michael Jackson was contractually obligated to still give a shit about his brothers. Mm-hmm. So it, that's called Can You Feel It? And we watched the video for that, and that was... Which was amazing. Amazing. And it had Portuguese subtitles <laughs> embedded, <laughs> like, hard-coded into it. Yeah. And, like, rainbows, and they were, like, gods yeah. above the golden bridge. It was, like, Tron meets Dance Fever combined with Xanadu. <laughs> effects and then there was like i don't know there's like some monologue happening that was like vincent price-esque but not really because i think they could only afford that for thriller it was just weird yeah um so that so that kind of has like but that's like a more jammy version of it Mm -hmm. okay so then um so that happens and and then bjork had uh kind of has that same like that baseline yeah, yeah and you know so i think uh overload is kind of a culmination of all of those things possibly unintentionally who knows what the producers were influencing on that degree but yeah the girls wrote a really interesting melody it's it's cool yeah um now this is where it gets a little bit bizarre there's a there's a tune by margaret berger all of these people are just people you love already, right? Sugar well, let's explain Margaret who Margaret Berger, Berger is no, to these people. No, I want to make this as oblique as possible. <laughs> Do your own damn research, listeners. Why are we here? <laughs> I don't feel appreciated. Um, no, Margaret Berger is the second place. She's the runner-up of Norwegian Idol 2004, of course, who actually... Are you writing this down because this will be on the quiz? On the quiz, happening in about five minutes. Uh, she no, won't because we'll still be talking about Overload. It's a pop quiz about pop. That's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really proud of you. High five. Woohoo! All Teamwork. Right. Uh, Margaret, uh, she's a very nice singer. She's Norwegian, as I said. So Margaret, uh, had a recent hit recently. Uh, she got, like, fourth place in Eurovision this year, 2013. 
um, the time of this recording, called I Feed You My Love, which is great, but that has nothing to do with Overload. So, but in the pop scheme of things, Margaret is kind of like always been bubbling under and people think she's really hip, but then she kind of disappears and then comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had, her first single was called Lifetime Guarantee. Um, and they, at the first time I heard it, I was like, oh damn, this is just like Overload, right? And then there's this other song, uh, which actually came, I guess that came slightly before uh, Lifetime Guarantee, but um, it's from Cowboy Bebop, and the composer Yoko Kano kind of has like a, a thing where once in a while people are like, maybe that's a little too close to its source material, Miss Yoko. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes if you're a soundtrack composer, you're expected to write certain things. I don't really want to speak on the behalf of that particular situation, but... What I will say is that one of the tunes that she wrote for the Cowboy Bebop movie, um, I remember watching the movie and being like, this sounds like Overload. And I think it actually came out the same year, 2001, 2000 or something like that? Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, and that's called Cosmic Dare. Now, there is a thing, right? Yeah. A thing with Extina Aguilar, mm-hmm. um, who our listener, our listener, singular, must know by now mm-hmm. that I have a quite a contentious situ like opinion of Miss Aguilera. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had a tune called Makeover. Linda Perry co-wrote it. Uh, and no relation to Steve. No, although honestly, they kind of look the same. <laughs> Did you see her in that pink video? Forget this party started, and her she like mouth is video? melting. Well, actually, I I think about her more in four non blondes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and she also still looks like a melting. She was okay. Well, wait, let's She's explain melting. who she is, just so everyone knows. Go ahead. She is the hey, yeah, 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 yeah. What's going on? No, not Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get it. <laughs> anyway, so she was lead singer in that band and also wrote, write songs for other people, right? And it was apparently in that pink video. Yeah, because she wrote that song too. Oh, she wrote "Let's Get This Party Started." Yeah, she wrote lots of songs for Pink, and then. Um, Pink felt betrayed because uh, Linda Perry started writing songs with Christina Aguilera, and this was one of them, uh, because Pink used to bitch about Christina Aguilera, and then Lin- supposedly Linda was on her side, but then Linda sold up for money and wrote Beautiful and Makeover. Now, Makeover ended up becoming a bit scrutinized because it's like a loud, angsty, um, slightly constipated version of Overload by Sugar Babes, and... Uh, it- so now, like, after a huge lawsuit, uh, somebody agreed, and uh, they, now, like, the Sugar Babes have credits writing on it, um, but, I don't know, it's funny, because you know those YouTube comments of, like, really angry Brazilian fans that have nothing else to do but, like, yell at pop stars to come to Brazil, one, <laughs> one, 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 exclamation point, um, <laughs> I love Brazilians, mind you, but the YouTube is not. It doesn't matter where you're from. I on YouTube, love YouTube. YouTube brings out the comments. worst in all people. I love it. I love, love, love you it. Can have it's hilarious. It's like it starts like with like she looks fat <laughs> in this video or whatever, and then 
it get the longer it gets, the more personal it gets. Until finally it ends with like, cause you bitch You don't know this would have happened if Ricky Lake hadn't been cancelled. Really? Yeah. Because that's where I think all those people came from. <laughs> Straight from the Ricky Lake audience into finding another forum to vent their... Sit down! You're just jealous <laughs> that I'm in love with my brother, who's also my child and my math teacher. <laughs> 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 I don't know. And Abraham Lincoln. Leaning <laughs> on the table. All right. Um... <laughs> So, uh, we're talking makeover. So, makeover it sounds like a very angsty, like you know, very, very, very constipated version of Overload. And uh, we gotta get X Tina and X Lax. And uh, I, I just remember reading comments on YouTube about that particular song when, we're, when we were doing some initial research about this, where uh, like they were like, "I hate that Sugar Babe song because they ruined the Christina Aguilera stripped DVD tour." I'm like, yeah, because plagiarism had nothing to do with ruining that opportunity before. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is all the Sugar Babes' faults. Um, now, I think also what's funny is that I remember from that court case that, or whomever, some, some part of the court appointed Linda Perry to work with the Sugar Babes and wrote the worst Sugar Babes song ever. Well, and there's there's a few clunkers in their catalog, whatever, but... It's called uh, Nasty Ghetto. <laughs> and it's just one big, like, Nasty Ghetto! And you're like, shut up. <laughs> shut up, Heidi Range. No. This is why you don't have a career. This is horrible. And so, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I always enjoy when Sasha imitates other people singing. Like, can you imitate the guy that you were talking about in the in the L who was busking in the L oh um I I had quite a bizarre day today and uh amongst the many things that happened to me I transferred to the blue line in Chicago and there's this weird moment you you have to kind of go all the way downtown to get exactly back where you're going so you have to go out of the way we're talking about public transportation yeah (coughs) that was a cough Noted. Uh, yeah. I that think. will be deducted from your paycheck. I hope so. What if I was like James Brown? But yeah, you like, are. Where... <laughs> the Shooka Babes in the no, third wait, wait, line. No, wait, wait, wait. Hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. What if I was like James Brown where like every time you made a mistake, I find you? <laughs> <laughs> What's funny? We're leaning on the table. Ha! <laughs> well, I'll find you. <laughs> I'll take it to the bridge. I'm gonna meet Captain Picard there. All right. Anyway, guy in the subway. You're quoting Timbaland for a second. Take it to the border. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. The James Brown and Captain Picard Our have Timbaland. that in common. Have, have that in common that they both take it to the bridge. Anyway, engage. Carry on. <laughs> um. So at the Blue Line, there was there's some people busking usually, and um, there was this man who's wearing an ill-fitted shirt, and he was. He had some pre-programmed looped moody R&B chords going on and he was kind of just singing some stuff and I was having a kind of a bad day and he he looked at me and went, how are you doing? And I just looked at him like, 
and, and then he went, not doing so well, but I'ma never quit you. I'ma never quit you. And he was really, really out of tune. And and then every time he would finish a phrase, he would hit his drum machine and go, do, do, do. <laughs> like, after, it was absolutely bizarre. And that train could not have come any sooner. Anyway, overload. <laughs> Outsider artist is what he said. Right. So let's talk about this in a timeline genetics format. So it possibly cam- comes from uh, Maurice Ravel and then into Ennio Morricone. Um, and then into Jefferson Airplane, into the Jacksons, technically the Jackson 5, into Bjork, uh, into into the Sugar Babes Overload, uh, into Cosmic Dare by Renata Hill and Yoko Kano, and uh, Makeover by Extina, and then finally ending, and a very slightly pleasant note, by Margaret Berger's Lifetime Guarantee. Strange fear I ain't felt for years. All right. Next topic. Next topic. You you go for it, because you're the one who sang the song, and then I realized that it sounded like a pixie song. Well, because for some reason, I had the theme song to this Disney cartoon called Pepper Ann stuck in my head. And... Pepper Ann, Pepper Ann, she's a cool for seventh grade. Pepper Ann, she's like one in a million. I'm sorry, Joe. You're asleep. Um, So... Sasha's referring to my husband who is sleeping upstairs. Just who I know, I just know he's gonna come downstairs and be like, "Could you keep it down?" And it's, I'm gonna feel the same way as like when you're like at a slumber party when you're a kid, and like I don't know why the parents think that having like 15 preteen girls in a house is not that why they think they're gonna get any sleep that night. But they come down, they're like, "You guys gotta keep it down," and they keep coming down like three or four times, and then don't bring me down. And then something gets broken. You know it's a real slumber party when something gets broken. Oh, yeah. Like hearts. And then there's a fight. Oh, yeah. People have to get separated. People who have soccer practice in the morning will go upstairs and sleep. People who don't stay in the basement. Mm-hmm. You get this. I'll have to bring in one of my childhood friends in to talk about the great Harris Bank Lion fiasco, 1987. <laughs> anyway. Um... <laughs> So, Sasha was singing the Pepper Ann theme. And I realized, I was like, I said to myself, that sounds like that Pixie song. Is she weird? Is she white? Does she bring her through the night? Bring her bring has no room. Keep it going, girl. That's it. That's that's what I got. We, I feel like we just com- compared a novel to to a little short story. <laughs> Moving on, Liz, you and got that, and that was the lottery by Shirley Jackson. Alright, alright. This next one. So I get I used to get this alert that was called the NPR song of the day. They don't do it anymore. Would you, would but you, I, I hate to interrupt you. Can, would you mind if I poured myself a wee bit more of the lemon lime soda? I would oh. like it if, while you were doing that, you poured me some of the diet Dr Pepper. Sure. Let me lean on the table to get up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. While Sasha is doing that, I'll just talk about this. 
I'm gonna give you contemptuous looks. Sasha's. I don't know if you could hear him. He just said he's going to give me contemptuous looks while I was talking. So anyway, I used to get this alert, and they would pick like a. <laughs> I wish that we had video of this. I know. Because every time Sasha looks over at me, it makes me start laughing. Anyway, so I'm just gonna not look at him. No, it's fine. All right. So I. Used to get the NPR song of the day, and they would, you know, highlight some song that they were excited about. And one time they had this French, like, kind of black metal band, but really they just sounded like delicious shoegazy Brit pop circa, you know, 1996 or something. And um, anyway, this band called Elsass. Um, I'm sure I'm not saying it right. I don't care. But they <laughs> had this song called La Nousse la Couleur. And it has this like guitar part about six minutes in. Thank you, Diet Pepper Delivery. So about six minutes in, they had this guitar part that was like... And I realized I was listening to it at work. And sometimes I have to listen to a few things things over and over at work to really, like, be tuned in. But there was this random moment where I was like, Wait a minute! This is a Billy Joel song! And I realized it was You May Be Right. Yes. But just the part that goes... And uh, that's what I got. That's what I got about that song. And then that song just kind of mutates into like this shoegazy, delicious Catherine Wheel thing, which, at the band Catherine Wheel, which, just by association, I realized, and see, this is where the metal thing comes in. So the lead singer of Catherine Wheel is cousins with Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. Which I thought was kind of awesome. Incidentally... Talk about song genetics. I know. But, and then also, like, some years ago, post-Catherine Wheel, um, Rob Dickinson, I think that's the lead singer, Catherine Wheel, so he actually um, collaborated, this goes back to a few minutes ago, bringing it round with Steve Perry from Journey, Mm. which was a really weird... Who my dad said is a douchebag when he came. Oh yes, discuss. Okay, so I'm gonna. Oh, haven't I discussed that before? You have. You may. You have discussed this before, but not with our podcast audience. Oh, my my father used to work uh, at a hotel as a manager and uh, as an attendant and lots of stuff. And I guess Steve Perry came in once and was just up. Was it like on Faulty Towers? Was he like the John Cleese character? Yeah, basically. My dad is John Cleese. I just thought I should come clean. <laughs> um, he just said that um, he was just a really. Neat Steve Perry was a really mean person. Really? Yeah. Can I have some examples, please? Well, I don't really remember. I just, I just always associate, well, my dad doesn't like him. If and when I ever meet your dad, that's going to be my first conversation with him. I want specifics. Don't stop when, you were, when you showed me this, um, I got it. And then for some reason, it made me also think of the Martha and the Muffins intro to Echo Beach. Like, 
jab, and I'm not sure how convoluted or like how much I'm stretching that. Some of this, you know, is a little bit arbitrary and may only sound like something to somebody else. It's a, it's a bit up in the air, and it, a lot of this is a judgment call. It's, I was just gonna say that, that I feel like some of this is like you really <coughs> have to be sort of like in the same mindset, and also you have to in some way possess that skill where. While one song is playing, you can recall another song, which is harder than it sounds. It really is. Because we discovered um, like uh, that uh, Heaven is a Place on Earth, and uh, what's the other song? Living, Living on, on a, a prayer. prayer. They sound the same. And then you loaded it, and then we tried singing Living on a Prayer in the Middle of Heaven. And, and we really... had to actually hit the space bar to stop, to be like concentrate for a minute and switch gears and the re- we never would have thought of that comparison other than the fact that there was a on popjustice.com there was a thread about songs that sound like other songs and someone suggested that and mm-hmm. we were like wait a minute and then we did it and we were like sure enough like <laughs> Cause, no because this is what we yeah. did so we listened to the beginning because there's that sort of acapella echoey stuff at the beginning of of that Belinda Carlisle yeah. song, and she goes, "See now I can't do it." Ooh, Ooh baby, do you know what that's worth? Ah, living on a prayer. Like we had to, we had to like hit. This. That was really hard to do. That what it is. I challenge any of you listeners to try to do that. So, so where I guess we're on uh, uh, Soft Boy. Okay, that song. I wanna destroy you. Kind of sounds like Bernie and Pink. Yep. Downtown picking up clothing, um, but I was buying I was buying a shirt so I wouldn't look horrible because I have yet to buy an iron. <laughs> so the logical thing is to buy an expensive shirt. Why don't you buy an iron or borrow someone? I don't need your. You logic. have roommates. Roommate. Does he have an iron? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of logic are you living? Oh, in? you Good live in logic. the you live in the bachelor pad. Anyway, when I went downtown, uh, I was trying on some shirts, and, and the music just out of nowhere started playing uh, Ripper to Shreds by Blondie, and that song just makes me giggle. Hey, you know her. Oh, hey, you know her. I love how you have totally nailed the Debbie Harry, like, frog in the back of the throat thing. <laughs> I love Deborah Harry. She's hilarious. And I like that you call her by her full name. Deborah. <laughs> Deborah Harrison. What's really funny about that monologue that in the beginning of Ex Offender, like, I saw you! <laughs> All the songs off that first Blondie album are hilarious. Well, I enjoy 
that so I'm in this glee club and we actually do X Offender, but that monologue that's in the beginning of the song where she goes, I saw you standing out on the corner looking so good and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you But what's hilarious is that we in the glee club we have the guys do that monologue. <laughs> so it sounds like weirdo stalking. I really wanted to go out. <laughs> like it's like someone who's like driving by in a car who's gonna molest you. <laughs> so golden eye and heroin. Oh. So when we were doing it the last episode. 27,000 years ago. Wait, 20,007,000 years <laughs> yes, ago. Yes, exactly. Because it was when the James Bond movie came out. <laughs> oh my god. And we, so yeah, and we were. So the episode was all about like songs commissioned for James Bond movies. So, uh, uh, Golden. What was I talking about? Oh, Golden. 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 <laughs> See reflections on the water. More than darkness. We realize that that te- that's the Tina Turner song. That the way she talks, like Earth a kit in a garbage disposal. Yeah. So the cadence of the way she says it, like. Sounded to me like Heroin by the Velvet Underground. But I'm gonna try for the kingdom if I can. But I can definitely do the cadence of it, which I will do for you, which I will do for you right now. Let's watch. Na na na. Na 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 na. Do you hear na, it? Na na na. Na na na. I'm sold. Here's what it really sounds like. See reflections on the water. More than darkness in the depths. See him surface and never a shadow On the wind I feel his breath Golden eye I found his weakness Golden eye he'll do what I please Golden eye no time for sweetness But a bitter kiss will bring him to his knees moment that I try to sing something sounds like this could end up as like that little callback at the end of every episode that is like like 
bloopers and outtakes. Liz, I think her entire life in general are just one big credit <laughs> sequence. In the crowd, other girls they gather around him. If I had him, I wouldn't bat him out. Golden eye. You want you want to talk about you want to talk about Huey Lewis and the Ghostbusters? Yes, there was a court case. Dun, I, I believe. Dun, dun. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, presided over by Ray, Ray Parker Jr. Or <laughs> I see that uh, actually. Sasha's like scrolling down to see like how many millions of more notes we have to get through. We no, well, I, I was scrolling specifically because we have a whole list of court cases. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, there was some kind of court case or something because Ghostbusters sounds like I want a new drug by Huey Lewis. Who came first? But they do sound exactly like the chicken or the Lewis. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys heard that. Sasha just said the chicken or the Ghostbusters. Did I, I said the Lewis? But you know, <laughs> same, same. Yeah, because they sound the same. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about some other court cases? You want yes. To, you want, uh, yes. Okay. Let's go so, through. Oasis bought their world some coke and themselves. <laughs> they did a lot of coke, especially around their third album. Their song Shaker Maker from their first album um, sounds like I want to buy the world of coke because they go. <laughs> I can't do it. I I can't wait. I can't Oasis on command. <laughs> okay, or, okay, okay. <laughs> Lizzie Glory. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so queso. Um, <laughs> that cheese sounds delicious. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the con queso fat panso story? Okay. Now you will. Yeah. Okay. So you know that really awesomely delicious um, appetizer called con queso fondito which is basically yes. chihuahua cheese and chorizo yes. like in a bowl and you slather it all over your body tongue and <laughs> face and like slather your taste buds with it and then like have a heart attack two minutes later because and you're gonna die from the amount of cholesterol and it's delicious and your eye your eyes turn opaque yes well one time Joe and I, my husband is Joe, uh, we were eating that, and Joe famously said, this is the con queso fat panzo, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious, and then later, as I was trying to retell that story, I accidentally said con queso fan pezzo, <laughs> which actually I'm realizing is... That last added detail is actually totally not uh, necessary in that story. 
I think it makes me understand the Oasis court case just that much further. <laughs> Wait, the first Oasis court case or the second Oasis oh, court case? Oh, that's right, because they had another... There was another court case, I think. I'm pretty sure there was a court case, but... Because cigarettes and alcohol... Sounds like that T Rex song. Oh, yeah. Was it Bang a Gong? I think. Yeah. Get it on, get it on, cigarettes and alcohol. I'm cutting all of us off of sugar. Um, how about the third Oasis court? <laughs> what are these guys doing? The Girls Aloud song, Life Got Cold, which is a horrible song. It really is. It's really awful. Um, the chorus kind of sounds like the pre-chorus to Wonderwall, kind of. Because they're... Right, in Wonderwall. And all the lights that lead us there are blinding. And then in life got cold. It's I'm doing I'm doing my my best Kimberly Walsh impression, which is you know, that went over my head. That's fine. <laughs> over my head, over our heads, like the. Like the gift the shop. facts of life gift shop. I love that I knew exactly what you were talking about. Cloris Leachman <laughs> and George Clooney and some Australian people from the Australian movie The Facts of Life Goes Down Under. Which is hilarious. <laughs> Which is amazing. I can't believe that. I've never. Was that intentional? On their part? I, I, I hope not, because that makes it better. Next court case. All right, so there was the Killing Joke in Nirvana. I don't know if this was necessarily a court case, was it? I just remember that like Killing Joke just being snarky towards Nirvana. But what song was... So The the 80s was the, ki- the Killing Joke song. And then Come As You Are, like it has like the same guitar riff, and it's really blatant. <laughs> Also, there's Nirvana. Like Kurt Cobain was really influenced by uh, Killing Joke, wasn't he? I wouldn't be surprised. Let's say yes. Okay. The next court. <laughs> the okay. So the Rolling Stones had the song called uh, "Has Anybody Seen My Baby," which is really, really annoying because Mick Jagger is annoying, and also looks like Linda Perry. Also <laughs> looks like Steve Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do a like you know we have song trees. Maybe we should do like. Face, face trees. trees, you know. 
That sounds horrifying. <laughs> that does sound horrifying. Um, but anyway, so their their song actually unintentionally rips off the Katie Lang tune "Constant Craving." Now, "Constant Craving" was a huge tune. It won a Grammy. It's like a solid pop tune. Like it's, it has a huge chorus. Um, and it's like uh, I'm I'm doing the gear shift thing. Uh, Constant craving. And then uh, the Rolling Stones one. Has anybody seen my baby? It's like spot on. Mm. And it turned out like, uh, I think like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were both like, oh, oh, whoa, we didn't realize this. So they gave, I actually gave Katie Lang and her co-writer for Constant Craving co-writing credits on Anybody Seen My Baby because they didn't want to get sued because they really liked the tune they wrote. I don't know why because it's not that good, but, um, but. At least in my opinion. I don't know. It's okay. That's ironic because. When the Verve used a Rolling Stones, I don't know if it was a sample or if they, they used just... a direct sample, and that, oh. that got into muddy territory. Yeah, they, they never got they never the Rolling Stones took all the money from that, and the Verve got nothing. Well, I think I think it's a slightly different condition because I think like well, I mean, Katie Lang is a really respected singer, and um, and I mean, Constant Craving was a huge tune, so everybody knew that tune at yeah. the time anyway. They don't yeah. really play it on the radio anymore. Um, although I think they did a Glee version of it. Yeah, they did. did they, they did do a Glee version of it. That's, um, anyway. And then Katie Lang was, I remember reading some interview with her in our research where she was like, oh, well, that was a pleasant check to receive in the mail. Like, just, she just didn't even know about yeah. the Rolling Stones tune. She went, okay, I guess I'll take this. Wow. Um, but the, the Verve, the Verve thing, I think they were, the Rolling Stones were like, these are a bunch of punks taking our tune. Oh. And... Which sucks because the Bittersweet Symphony was a huge song, and they saw nothing from it, and they all yeah. went bankrupt. Yeah, but that's and to make it worse. <laughs> Whoa! No, this is gonna make it even ten times worse. Rush Limbaugh loved that song. He would play it on his show. Cricket, cricket. I know. Oh, I just thought of another court case, although we didn't write this down. Yes. Elast, I remember there was, a, you know, that band Elastica. I forget what song it was, but I think there was a court case between them and the Stranglers. Because, hmm. yeah, but I don't remember what song it was of theirs that, I don't know. Be on the lookout, and our second place winner may win <laughs> the smelling strips from the, <laughs> from the cologne. Someone wants to write in, we'll... we'll, we'll. We'll read listener mail or reader mail <laughs> if anyone gets a trans. If you'd like a transcript of this episode, please write to to Steve Delinsky, <laughs> care of Liz Mason. Okay, what Sasha is referring to is the fact that I have a picture, a framed you picture, have a headshot of Steve <laughs> Delinsky by your spice rack. Okay, Steve Delinsky is the hungry hound from Channel Seven. Every time I go to a restaurant, there's a picture of him that he's visited there. And also, might I add that the picture is from, like, 30 years ago. And it's always, like, him, like, you know, writing, like, you know, this is a great restaurant. And then, you know, and they have him up there, you know, like, his picture endorsing the restaurant. And I went through this phase where every time I'd go to a restaurant, I would take a picture of myself next to the Steve Delinsky picture. And I started a Flickr set called Me and Steve. (laughs) <laughs> and then for my birthday, my brother actually got me a signed 
photo from Steve Dolinsky. The signature on it looks strikingly similar to my brother's handwriting. So, Madonna's song Frozen. While I get a snack, Sasha will tell you about the Belgian song. Fine, pass this off on to me. (laughs) Um, So, there's this Belgian tune. I can't for the life of me remember what it's called, and I just don't care. But it's not very good, and it's some old song. That is squeaky. Um, At least I'm not leaning on the table. I'm not either. Yes. Okay. Ooh. Oh, these are popped roasted red pepper chips. How exciting. I know. They taste a little bit like styrofoam, but, uh... Hey, that's the point of eating. Yeah. Um, okay. High fiber, high protein, low carbs, low fat. Win-win situation. Oh, these smell delicious. Hang on. This episode sponsored by Popped Roasted Red Pepper Crisps. Air popped hummus based chip for a unique snack. This unit not labeled for individual sale. So don't you be selling that on the street. We definitely need more soda to go with this though. But after you get a soda, you have to tell the Belgian court case story. Fine, I'll do it. Basically, like, Madonna's banned from performing Frozen or doing anything with the song Frozen uh, because it vaguely, like, extremely vaguely sounds like some sort of Belgian rock tune and Madonna, like, Madonna is guilty of many things in life, but one of them I, I must say is not intentionally plagiarizing some obscure Belgian tune. And for some reason, the courts, like, said, okay, sounds great. And now, whatever. That's the whole gist. But I think she she's recently taken to performing remixes of it, because I guess that's a loophole, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Well, see, it's interesting, because Madonna's very obvious about her influences. Yes, please chew right into the microphone while leaning on the table. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Vanilla. All right. No so, way. No, no way. way. I'd never heard of this man. And such a shame because really pinnacle of all pop music. So there's this British lady band called Vanilla. <laughs> lady band. <laughs> girl. <laughs> They're not a girl band. Yeah. So, yeah. See, I, here's the thing: is I feel like girl band implies that they're young. But the women in this, I mean, and that feels weird to say women band, because then it just sounds Well, they're not weird. really in a band. I guess they're a group, but they're, they look like... Well, first of all, they're like, supposed to look sexy, but they're like, for that stereotypically sexy girl band look, you know, they're even too old to be that sort of like, aging shonen knife puffy Amy Yumi thing. Oh, yeah. You know. They look like the ladies that only look good at the end of the bar because there's no lighting. And one of them looked like Tori Spelling, kind of, with red hair, who is already weird looking. I find weird, I find it weird pictures when I see sexy pictures of Tori Spelling. Like, I don't... No way, no way! Unnatural. Anyway, so, so. Th- this kind of, anyway, th- they have this tune called No Way, No Way, 
which is not any sense of like this song sounds like this this is actually leading us into a slightly related topic or at least parallel universe topic uh, mm-hmm. called interpolation interpolation is a legal term meaning that you are taking a part of another song as a riff or as some sense of musical bed in your own composition. This happens all the time, but it is very complicated sometimes when you do that in terms of getting rights. But apparently somebody (laughs) believed in vanilla enough to get Menomina in their horrible poolside video. (laughs) Yeah, so it's them... Like, the, the gist of the song is like, you want me to get with you, and I'm like, no. Then when we started doing research, we realized that that song was actually, what was it, like an, like an Italian porno or something? Something right? like that. It was bizarre. Like, the Wikipedia for Menomina is intense. Yeah. Wikipedia, Menomina, how a ditty from a softcore Italian movie became the Muppets' catchiest tune, dot HTML. Let's read you an article that we did not write. From Slate.com. Italian softcore movie called... Sweden, heaven and hell. Styled as a documentary about Scandinavian sexuality, which Mm. provided a thin veneer of respectability Mm. for its leering exploration Mm. of lesbian nightclubs and meter maids who moonlight as nude models. Mm. Well, actually, I think he's kind of sweet. No way, no way. Manamana. No way, no way. Mana mana. No way, no way. Mana mana. Not today. Don't get pushed with me. Here we go. Here's an interpolation note. Mm-hmm. Back to Sugar Babes, kinda. Siobhan has a song called Medivac, which quotes, it interpolates the melody of Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. Which, Medivac itself, actually, ge- song genetic-wise, sounds similar to this Yes Hair song, because it has the same bass line and the same kind of, like, hipstery. And then you said that Taylor Swift has a song that's... I knew yeah, you were trouble. Yeah, song Trouble sounds like Medivac. Which I remember nothing about why I thought that. Sounds great. And, uh... Oh, wait, there was... Oh, there's so much nonsense going on. In the notes that... Oh, but we're we're going off topic because we have all these uh, links to the sensitive female chord progression, Mm -hmm. which is 6-4-1-5, which in music theory terms, when you have a scale, and I'm only explaining this once, and I don't know if I'm going to explain it well. (laughs) I know I'm a music teacher. (laughs) But we have a scale. You know, it's do-re-mi. Now, instead of do-re-mi, fa-so-la-ti-do, you assign each of the notes or pitches to a number one two three four five six seven now you can take those and whatever key you're in is going to be your one or your root from there anything in the core in the scale is going to be that number like for the chord in relation to the one so if we were in the key of c our six is going to be a our four is going to be f our one is going to be C, and our five is going to be G. I'll be the Adam Corolla and put that in layman's terms. <clears throat> so that's one, two, three, four, two, four, four, three, two, one, four. You know, so like basically like singing numbers instead of 
Yeah. And in relation to each other. Yeah, and, just beca- and then those numbers become the root of the chords that you choose when those go. For the, this is the only time this will ever happen that you played the straight man and I played the funny man. Yeah, what happened? That will never happen again. Why are we talking about the sensitive female chord progression? Oh, because, because... Because it was a blog that I stumbled across quite some time ago where it's a collection of songs that all have that particular chord progression. Now, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, there's only so many chord progressions, only so many notes. But for God's sake, <laughs> this this chord progression thing just keeps on happening. And the, I remember once with a friend... So wait, so sing the chord progression so people know what we're talking about. I, I can't. It's 6415. That sounds like an area code. I will, however, because I can't because it's one ten in the morning and my brain is fried. But I will tell you that you can sing lots of different songs at the same time, like Building a Mystery and If I Were a Boy and What If God Was One of Us and I Know Sasha Get Your Elbow Off the Table <laughs> and All You Wanted by Michelle Branch. <laughs> can you sing a couple of those yeah. lines from a well, couple of those? Can you, you know What If God Was One of Us? If I were a what if boy. God was one of... What, what, what are you trying to orchestrate? Can you do If I Were a Boy, then? If I Were a Boy? Yeah. Okay. If I Were a Boy... What if God was one of us? Even just for just a slob like one of us. Yeah, they kind of call and respond with each other, and then... Oh. I want to... What, what is... So that's called the sensitive female chord progression, because what it is communicating is a sense of the same song <laughs> no i know but i mean you know well like... a chord progression is when you have it's a progression of chords so it's called the sensitive female chord progression because it seemed like there's all these sensitive 90s early 2000s songs that are about the sensitive female if i were a boy even just for a day So this is a different day that we're recording the rest of this. We were talking about the sensitive female chord progression, and uh, there was discussion of gold frap. Now, this is my theory. Because we are on a different day, I am currently eating a salad made of arugula. Now, the British term for arugula is rocket. The gold frap song that I'm about to mention is also called rocket. The synths sound like Van Halen's jump. Therefore, I am eating Van Halen. Uh, is it real spicy? Because otherwise it would be too hot for teacher. <laughs> have a winner. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. But speaking of, speaking of gold frap, because um, we, we had... The chapter of Oasis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Goldfrap is a mini chapter. It's like a novella kind of thing. Um, they uh, they seem to reference a lot of things. Uh, they, like uh, they have a couple of songs specifically that seem to refer to T Rex and Norman Greenbaum. That kind of like uh, how would you describe that kind of like glam rock, but kind of sassy. Um, like a spirit in the sky, yeah, and uh, bang a gong, you yeah, know, like stuff like that. Where it has like battle, battle, battle. Children of the Revolution. 
it's interesting how, how much of an amalgamation that they, they take in from other influences. Um, like, like in case in point, Rocket with Van Halen, which is super left field compared to some of their really other artsy stuff. Some of, some of which has like a theremin in it. And anyway, so Goldfrapp, Goldfrapp take, takes in lots of glam rock influence as well. And so the spirit in the sky kinds of stuff kind of seems to pop up, um, which is interesting because you now I, I'm portraying Goldfrapp as some sort of band that kind of sucks in external influence to regurgitate their own. Now, they somehow seem to have their own little bit of a, a flair that seems attractive to other artists, particularly when they kind of made it big with, with their song Strict Machine and Ooh La La, and that seemed to cause a lot of imitators there. So it was like imitators were imitating the imitator, which kind of seems a bit incestuous, I guess, for like a better term, you know, or at least really derivative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like when someone goes to karaoke and they do, a, like, you know, they do someone else's song, because that's what you do at karaoke, but it's someone else covering a song. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I'm going to do so-and-so's version of Killing Me Softly or whatever. Oh, oh Lauren Hill. Yeah, as opposed to... Roberta Flack. Yeah, you know, it's like cover of a cover of a cover. It's like a Xerox copy that's been Xeroxed a million times and then... It mutates into something else because of, you know, it just looks different. This does get into a bit of a dangerous territory because I think cover versions are a story unto their own. This is true. Uh, but, and I think sometimes, but just just as an aside, I do think sometimes uh, there are definitive versions of a song, even if it isn't the original. Like, uh, that disco version, I can't remember who sings it, uh, but the disco version of Knock on Wood is what I, my brain immediately goes to as opposed to the Motown one. Yes. Um... Uh, or actually, similarly, uh, soft sells tainted love as opposed to Gloria Jones's tainted love. You know? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. There is an original, but for some reason, the original didn't seem to resonate. Yeah. But I think what's what uh, there's a kind of a commentary on on sounds that people are attracted to, and you know, even fashion. It's it's really just like sonic fashion. Um, Ooh, nice. Where yeah. Pe where people kind of keep coming back to different sounds and regurgitating them. Right. And that's cool. And Goldfrapp, uh, in particular, seems to absorb different fashions. So they're slightly ahead of the curve of something that's coming back based off of the need of their own expression. So that's kind of cool. It's not, it doesn't feel derivative, but you can still listen to it and be like, oh, I hear that in there. You know, there's a little bit of Shirley Bassey here. We always need to plug Shirley Bassey. <laughs> we haven't plugged Jewel State yet, so I will take this time to do so. Anyway, so, so there was this moment with Goldfrapp where people were imitating them exactly, and that was weird. Like, there was Madonna and Kylie Minogue, who you think of generally as, you know, they're, they're like the two icons specifically of dance pop. They've, they should be the ones with all the producers that are ahead of it. Instead, they were going to people to be like, how can I sound like that? And they were actively, so like, I think there was actually a Madonna interview where she admitted that. She was like, oh, I really like Goldfrapp, and so... You could hear that influence on some of her stuff, on um, and some of her stuff, her uh, mid two thousands wilderness period, <laughs> I guess, which has never ended because we got hard candy and that was upsetting. Yeah. Um, and then her most recent one, which we, which was equally boring. Which is upsetting because I will admit that the I enjoy the cover artwork for both her MDNA. Like I really, I really like it. It's, it seemed like oh, this is really really well thought out artistically, and that was an illusion, and I felt jilted. Um, but uh, there were other people, like 
Rachel Stevens, queen of indecisive nut preference. Does British. She, does she want dry roasted or does she want cashews? We do not know. Uh, listeners, Sasha is referring to an interview. Of Rachel Stevens. It's an infamous one. Rachel Stevens is a very bland but pleasant singer from S Club 7. S Club 7 uh, was a band made by Simon Fuller, and they had a very popular television show in the States called uh, S Club 7. <laughs> and uh, there, was a, there was a follow-up, S Club Miami, or something like that. Uh, anyway, Rachel probably was the most personality-less person, and I don't mean to deride her. I think she's very pleasant, as I said, but not exactly anybody in that band I would have seen gone solo, and yet she was the one. And Ironically, she's, she did a cover of Knock on Wood, and I didn't think about that until just talking about that, but... That's fine. But she had a song called Some Girls, and that sounds very similar to the gold frap oeuvre. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's fascinating, you know, like, it, we're in general, we're, we've been talking this entire podcast about songs that happen to borrow liberally from other songs, whether intentional or not, a melodic idea, a chord structure, a little bit of an instrumental. Sometimes we, we hear things in our head, or we hear things outside of ourselves, and we're influenced by that. We, we're influenced by the way our parents talk, the way that our friends talk, the way that media portrays images. And a lot of that becomes subconscious after a while. We don't necessarily know why we're doing something, and that can be a little scary. And and also, the re reason things might sound particularly dated is because the one thing that affects the sounds that we make musically is the technology that's available. Yes. Uh, so that's why, you know, like, you get, like, the horrific... Uh, fair light keyboards that always sound like band special occasion wedding or bar mitzvah bands but in the, the 80s. They're, or... they're in vogue again. Yes. Not not the girl group, but they're But then there's a sense of, no, this is outright being a copycat. You know, and so that kind of brings us to that Oasis thing where like, oh, you know what? Let's see if we can get away with it. Right. I remember reading an interview. No, it was a book. Whatever. No, um, Noel Gallagher, who did, who did most of the songwriting of the Gallagher Brothers for Oasis, someone was talking to him and they were like, all I know how to play are Beatles songs. And he said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, probably he was more like, me too, mate, or whatever, you know. Yeah, or but, at least Beatles-esque songs. Yeah. Because yeah. I do tend to get a lot of Beatles references, which I think, I, I personally think is a disservice to Oasis because I think it's a bit of a lazy journalism in that regard, but what can you do? People want to people want to genreify and narrow down and specify as much as you can, just so we can we can get it by quickly. We need instant. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the idea now that with the gold trap thing, where people were copying a sound as opposed to specifically a song structure, it's kind of like taking taking someone's identity and then seeing how you can do as that identity. You're not necessarily taking the song. You're taking that person's expression. And yeah. that's, that's a really bizarre territory to be in. Yeah, sometimes I get the feeling that's what people plagiarize. Yeah. Because they're they're like, that is a really awesome song. I want everyone to think that I have that energy, that I'm that person, that I created that, that I you know. That's kind of the impulse also behind like when you cover something and you make it sound exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what, like, there, what's the purpose? Yeah, like the purpose is, you know, I, I, I want to capture that energy. I want to I want to exude that. Yeah, it's a lot of, I guess, 
energy and image envy. Yeah. Because we want to be other people. Yes. And I think that, um, you know, like, people will refute, they'll defend themselves if they get accused of that by saying, no, it's a tribute to blah, mm. blah, blah. And at what point does tribute become uh, just ripping off? Yeah. And actually... <laughs> Ironically, not my own quote. That was actually, I, I heard someone else say that once, and I was like, so true. So, we have attributed. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I feel obligated to mention that disclaimer. Good work. Because I can't. Because we can't afford to be sued. Well, no, I mean, you know. Uh, well, we wouldn't be, but. No, no, and you know what I mean. Yeah. It's just ironic. No, actually not ironic at all. Appropriate. That, uh, or misappropriated. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, uh, diluting all this down... There, there is that borderline. I feel, my personal feeling is that with Goldfrap, they take their influences and restructure them rather than become the other thing. You can see, like, that they, they take sounds of other people, but it's still very much them because they're, they're clearly expressing themselves using the tools of other people. Yeah. And I feel like most people in the, in, at least in the top 40 spectrum... You know, I don't want to... There's always going to be exceptions to everything, and Lord knows that we are not authorities on anything, but we sure have a podcast, so that makes us more important. Uh, that the idea is, if you... There, there's a sense of going too far, you know? that, And it's... I, I don't think people have enough awareness in general to realize, you know, perhaps this is becoming a bit of a single white female situation. Perhaps you are really overtaking somebody else's life you know we do we were liz and i were talking uh, off the record earlier about uh, how we do art because we have such a frustration of of expression that we need to do it in an elevated level and if you're doing this if you're doing music or any type of art or any type of expression it doesn't have to be art if you're just being a person and you are ripping off someone else's way of expression rather than being like, oh, I like that, you know, then it gets to be a bit creepy and it gets to be a bit soulless. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because if, I, I would like to think better of people and think we all have something to give. So that tribute line, like, we, we, need, to, we need to set legal limits about that. Yeah, yeah. And take people down. You know, I think people who, uh, you know, perform songs that are written by someone else that you know, are written expressly for them, but in someone else's words. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, okay, for example, Piece of Me, Britney Spears. Okay. Okay, so, like, someone wrote that for her, you know, based on her experiences, um, but, but she didn't write it, but she still was like, this sums me up pretty well. I agree with these points. I feel like there's no... There's no harm in that, mm -hmm. you know? That's, like, that's the same thing as, like, when you're a teenager and you're, like, this song totally, like, this song totally, you know, I relate to this song. I feel like this, you know, I made this mixtape for you and this <laughs> this song describes how I feel about you. You know, like, it's, I think it's okay. I mean, that's, that art, song, that art, that song, that movie, whatever, resonates with us because, you know, it, it speaks to us. And, and I feel like as long as you admit the source, mm -hmm. then you're okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then when people start hiding it, yeah. then it's just like, well, why are you being ashamed of it? We all, we mimic each other because that's how we learn and that's how we grow. There's nothing truly original other than the idea that 
you have a sense of expressing yourself and you have a need for that. It's interesting too, I think, because I think we have this idea that um, curating is not an art form mm. um, or that, you know, art criticism or discussion of media is not art form. But like if you make a mixtape for somebody, it's, that's not really considered art because you're taking someone else's creations and, you know, Oh, we're getting into, like, collage territory. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Like I, like, I think there is that the, the curating is definitely an art form. And also that there's some critical thinking that goes on, especially if you're, you know, like, you're writing the introduction to the art show that you curated. You know, that, yeah. like, you know, that you're creating new conclusions based on the stuff that you've collaged together holistically. Um... So I don't. I guess my point is that you can be an artist even if you're not creating traditional art in the sense of the source material, um, and I think that you know that's why sampling is so uh, compelling. I think. Yeah. Because if you have a ability to capture an earworm and translate it into some other type of song, you know that uses that in a way that's different than in the original song or merely inspired by, but is in some way different, you know, that, that, that is a legitimate artistic form as well. It's sort of like you're casting, uh, in like, if you're the director of a song, you know, like if, if we're talking about it, like a movie metaphor and you're casting a specific segment being like, I can see you doing this. Yeah. Why don't I quote unquote, if you could only see listeners, if you could see how much we talk with our hands, it's great. Just, if you can listen from now on just flailing a lot, that would be great. <laughs> I, think, I think you'll get our juju more. Uh, it's, it's really just taking something and doing something different with it rather than taking it and then abducting it. Yeah. And I actually, you were, you, when you were talking about Peace of Me and, and then this whole, this whole spiel, I, I was thinking about, um, of all people, Linda Ronstadt. Uh, you know, who people think of very, well, when I think of Linda Ronstadt, I think of the unfortunate Sun City incident and then her really terrible duets with Aaron Neville and the unnecessary mariachi sequence of her life. But <laughs> she was initially famous because she was an unashamed interpreter. And I, I tell my voice students that I think interpreting is a very, it's a lost art form. There's no shame in covering other people's music if you can see yourself in it and see what your own strengths are and what you can bring to the material that you appreciate. So I think that's fair with what we're talking about, like mixtapes and what we're talking about sampling. Yeah. If you are interpolating. Yeah, and interpolating. Yeah. If we if we take these um, these this material and we put our own selves in it, then that's fine. But if you're doing it word for word, imitating the performance of someone else, then that's not okay. Um, I suppose in a way, in a theatrical sense, you know, there's, there are roles written within a play or a musical and you can think like, oh, I liked this actor or this actress better in this particular role, but it's the same role, you know, but they are required by unwritten law <laughs> mm -hmm. to perform and bring an, their own essence to that particular written role. Otherwise it's just something on a script. Yeah, exactly. And I don't really understand why music tends to have this uh, stigma about performing other people's work all the time. I mean, yes, there's a sense of you want to be original and you want to express that, but I think people get so hung up on image and credibility that 
they end up taking it too far and be like, well, I, I would never be caught dead covering someone else's work. It, you can do it in a sense of appreciation, in a sense of legitimate tribute. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's really about understanding your own role and your own sense of aesthetic and having a discussion with yourself and being like, was this a good idea? You know? Yeah. Well, and I think also, like, if you want to um, have your audience make a certain type of association of style of your work, then you cover a song that communicates something that, you know, either that song or that artist or whatever. Like, you, like, why? Like, yeah, like, I know you're an expert on this. Why don't you talk about that? Well, no, I mean, I think what you're, I, what you're saying is, like, if you find a song that's within your own universe of how you express yourself, then it's, you know, insert Madonna here. <laughs> well, no, yourself. but I mean, no, why you, you've covered stuff on your album. Oh, I, I covered, I covered uh, Donna Summer's Dinner with Gershwin, which is actually written by Brenda Russell, but to me, Donna Summer's version is definitive. Sorry, Brenda. But it's because her voice resonates in the song so much more emotionally. Yeah. And the same thing with, with you know, Britney Spears' Piece of Me. If you, and tons of songs that Linda Ronstadt has done, I'm just, I'm just summing it all up here, I guess. If you can find a lyric that you, as the performer resonate with if it if it feels like an extension of thoughts that you already have if you feel like it's something that's already a sounding board for what you need then it's there for you you're allowed to do it you're allowed to borrow that person's clothes you can do that yeah but i, I think you you did dinner with gershwin for uh, not just because the, the, oh i see what the, you the vo not just because she's in your vocal range but you know but because that song like, that there were certain things that you identified with in certain characteristics of that song that you were like, this is definitely, like, something that, I, like, the associations that are associated with this song are in some way, um, you know, uh, things that resonate with what you're trying to do artistically. Yeah. I felt, I felt it, was a, it was a bit of a quirky pop tune. <laughs> a bit of a quirky pop tune and I find I'm a bit quirky and I like that about myself and I thought the lyrics were unusually descriptive and used a lot of bold choices um, but I also felt that perhaps the production of it was a bit dated and a little overwhelming for what the song was trying to communicate so I felt you know, well, you were taking the song to the next level that you felt like it should have been at. Yeah. Well, I, you were evolving the song, which is perfect because... I'm going to interrupt you here. Oh, no, it's I'm going to go on a little monologue Please here. do. Okay, so I was... Even though I'm not a Daft Punk fan, they just sound like Peter Frampton to me. I did... Yeah. Dude's making his guitar talk, Can, can you auto-tune that wah-wah? Let's <laughs> see what I can do. Anyway, the... Um, I did watch a series of videos of some of the people that Daft Punk collaborated with on their most recent album, and one of them they talked to was um, Nile Rodgers. Oh, because he he collaborated with them on this album. He's just so chic. <laughs> and he said that he was talking about how okay, so this is hilarious. When people talk about Daft Punk, they talk about them and they call them the robots, which are it's hilarious. And people talk about them in these like numinous tones, like you know, like. They are, the robots uh, landed on Earth and they're gentle robots that love us and they've decided to stay with us to help, you know, I know you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but... Is, is, it, 
It answered some crickets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, but so anyway, now Roger said, you know, like, you know, disco was really just like, you know, that helped uh, evolve hip hop, and um, and that's how newer genres of music happen. You know, there's there's something happening, and then things evolve out of that. You know that. There is a sort of sequential narrative that happens musically within certain cultures, of course. You know, that's the way that life is. Um, you know, things don't happen outside of a context. And he was saying that he feels like that, that Daft Punk is this, um, you know, that they are very sort of uh, forward thinking and these musical geniuses and blah, 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 that they're gonna take what's happening musically and move at it, make it evolve into the next thing. And I feel like I I'm reminded of that when you say, you know, like this is what was missing from this song. I'm gonna evolve this song into what it needs to be. And as if to say someone else is gonna come along later and move, you know, it into, you know, whatever is next in the evolution of that song and that's almost like how folklore happens yeah well we, we exchange ideas and it's, it's that's it <laughs> you, you got it yeah it's, Liz Mason I, I think out of all of this it's not in the wise words of the poet laureate Chicone express yourself Also, <laughs> from the literature of the funk universe, it's your thing. Do what you gotta do. Thank you. <laughs> Basically, don't be a jerk. Just do your stuff. Yeah. Um, Learn what's appropriate. Like try to try to find your authentic voice. In your artwork. I like that. Yeah, in your music. Um, there may be people that, um, you know, don't like what you do. Maybe they're not your target audience. I mean, I don't mean to put it in marketing terms. But, it might you know, be that you're Walmart. I mean, it, it may, you know, maybe the type of music or art, writing, whatever that you do is only going to appeal to certain types of people, and I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, maybe the type of work that you do is not something that you'd be able to make a living off of. And maybe that's okay too. I, I would I would also like to cite your sources. <laughs> Chicago format, please. ALA handbook. MLA handbook? MLA. LSD handbook? BLT. <laughs> I would also like to say, just remember if you're an aspiring artist, I need a degree. And do what's best for the art, rather than what's best, what you think is best for yourself. You know, you're there to give yourself to the product. You're only as good as what people remember that output to be. If you try to overdo it, then, you know, people can see through that, or it'll be, it might be popular for a short amount of time, but then it kind of becomes hollow. So, basically, just do, do the best you can to be honest with yourself. You know I, what I thought for sure where you were going to go with that was try to do what's best for the art and forget about yourself. Let the voice of the Lord Savior come through and think of yourself as 
as as uh um uh the the Lord speaking through you, or as the, as the pet shop boys would say, I compose and try to imagine that Mozart is composing through me. I swear to God, I read an interview like Neil Tennant once who said that. The word of the list. <laughs> Praise be to podcast. <laughs> It's time for NSYNC fan fiction. It's fan fiction about NSYNC. So here's what you missed on InSync fan fiction. Liz and Sasha got their hands on some three-ring binder a friend of theirs found in a thrift store that's full of what they think is some prepubescent girls fan fiction, where she fantasizes about the late 90s, early aughts band InSync, and she loves Joey, the least popular member of the band, and the action revolves around a narrator that looks like some girl that Joey knocked up named Kelly, and since the narrator and Joey are childhood friends, Joey and the rest of InSync get the narrator to pose as Kelly, while the real Kelly goes and has the baby. And only one page of the found InSync fan fiction binder gets read every episode, and sometimes Liz and Sasha fall into baffled confusion and sometimes fits of uncontrollable hysterics and then try to figure out what the hell is going on. And that's what you missed on InSync Fan Fiction. I'm scared I made the wrong choice. You're doing a favor for a friend. That can never be the wrong choice. I need to sleep on this, I think. Yeah, maybe. Can I say something? No. I mean, yeah. Tell me the story again. The little kids who promised to do whatever they could to help each other, no matter what. Because? Because we found out our parents were having an affair, and nobody knew but us. Because we have lived with lies and would do anything to protect our family. I protected my mom. You protected your dad. And now we're protecting your baby. I can live with that. Let me get some sleep. I'll be better tomorrow. Tomorrow will be busy, babe. I'm going to be okay. I just need to sleep. And see. Who's protecting whose baby? I don't know what's going on. All right, let's back up a minute. So we actually just Googled... Joey Fatone, Kelly dating. I can't believe we didn't think to do this earlier. I know. Shame on us. And we, on Wikipedia, we found, let me pull that up to refresh my memory. We found that it says under personal life, on September 9th, 2004, Fatone married his on and off girlfriend 10 years, Kelly Baldwin. There's even a footnote, which therefore means that Wikipedia is not lying. Because it, it, it cites its source. Yeah, you Chicago know. formatting. The ceremony took place in Ohika Castle on Long Island, New York, and was attended by all of Fatone's bandmates. Fatone and his wife had two daughters, Brihaha, Brihana Jolie. Oh, I think it's Brianna. Oh, there's some H's and N's in there. Born on May 21st, 2001, and Chloe Alexandra, born Chloe on... Chloe with a K. Mm-hmm. Born on January 11th, 2010. Fatone's best friend, Lance Bass, is Brahalala's godfather. I, I, look, I, I have to, I'm sorry, I have to talk more about the spelling, because this isn't just like Chloe, like K-H-L-O-E, this is K-L, 
M-O-E-Y. It was sort of like they found seven different spellings and put them in a Vitamix. Oh, no, I get it. It's upsetting. K for Kelly, O-E-Y for Joey. Chloe. It makes sense. That's their firstborn. So, of course, the firstborn, they do the funky thing with names. I would like to vomit right now. Oh, wait. No, that's the secondborn. Sorry, I stand corrected. No, wait. Yeah, Chloe is the secondborn. Because Brie for the cheese and Anya for the type of fish. Piranha. 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 (laughs) So, in the story here, the, the narrator... Assume that we're assuming is female. Actually, we always just assumed it was some female. So and so the the Pariah assumption Gary. that we're filled in via uh, this segment is that this person and Joey grew up together and their parents were having an affair, and they for whatever reason felt like they were the only ones that knew and had to protect the world from finding out. Right. And now they're now Joey. Someone someone has a baby that they need to protect or is about to have a baby. They... It better not be Chloe. Oh, no, no, no. Hmm. Uh, he... Wait a minute. This is written from the perspective of Kelly Baldwin. That's who this person is supposed to be. But that's the thing is that I... And that that daughter is not even her daughter. It's the daughter of someone... Wait. No, 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 no. It's. I think it's. It initially tried to lead us into being Kelly, but then they keep talking about like decoys and deception, and I feel like it's the fake. It's a fake Kelly Baldwin. I think, and because this conversation that we just had was. It's a someone who looks like Kelly, Kelly Baldwin, Baldwin, and she didn't even notice it until somebody else pointed it out, and so she's getting away with it. And now Joey's like, "I'm not going to call you out on it in front of other people." Oh, and she's not pregnant, but Kelly Kelly Baldwin might be. But that's where where it falls apart, though, because she says, like, you know, she says, I'm going to... Now we're protecting your baby? Does she say that to him, or does he say that to her? I don't know. If he's saying that to her, then it makes no sense, because the idea is that she looks like Kelly, but isn't pregnant, and so therefore trying to fool everyone, like, protecting his baby that his lady is... Kelly is pregnant, and since this girl is not pregnant and looks like Kelly, then she can be seen around with him while the real pregnant Kelly goes off somewhere and has a baby. But but then but then none of this makes sense because I, this is the thing. I am if this is indeed from the perspective of Kelly Baldwin. It's not official yet. This is this is just a very strong theory, but. If it is from Kelly Baldwin, I find myself disappointed. Unless unless this is actually the memoir of Kelly Baldwin. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Which would be amazing. However, my theory that... Because I, I really want this... I really want this narrator, this, this protagonist of the story, to actually be a girl named Kelly. Not, not Kelly Baldwin. And so what if... Oh. What if... For my own selfish need, let's theorize, humor me, that this girl is named Kelly or is changing herself to the name of Kelly to see herself in this role, and all of a sudden Joey's like, yeah, you look like Kelly, but I see through you. And so she's trying to earn it. I don't... Does that kind of make sense? I do. I, I like this very much for a bunch of reasons. It's like a Mary Sue-ish sort of thing. But okay, like- well, here's what I think. I, I think you're onto something. Definitely either her, the girl who did this, her name is Kelly, or she's changing it to Kelly. Yes. And... 
that's also why they keep calling her Kelly, but also saying, oh, you look just like Kelly. So, and if this is written by someone who's actually like 12, 13, 14, it's almost like audio masturbation to hear Joey say, like in interviews and stuff, Kelly this, Kelly that, or see it in print, Kelly this, because it's like she's seeing her own name, like, and she gets off on that. Right. So there's reason number one and two. I'm, so, I'm sold on this theory. Yeah. I think that we're right. Yeah. So I'm going to go with it. <laughs> all right. Um, I will say this is probably out of all of the pages. I, I'm getting I'm getting some semblance of the story now. But out of all of the pages, this is probably the most confusing of them. And I feel like this particular segment that we've, we're discussing right now will not be... It, it will be more illuminated, at least following the page god i hope mm-hmm. um but for right now this is this is uh, one of the pages that cannot stand alone this is clearly a transitional page right right you know? it's not a one-off episode right much like our our theoretical 12 to 14 year old girl is also in her own transitional stage i am stretching this so much and i it, <laughs> try to oh no i'm loving this can you talk more about that <laughs> no but i would like this if if it isn't just to repeat this, if this is not written by somebody named Kelly or somebody whose middle name is Kelly or somebody that fetishizes being Kelly, regardless, if this is written by Kelly Baldwin, I I, I don't know. I would be moved deeply. And, you know, this is her love letter to her life, her untold story. Like, like I would imagine, like, when uh, Ronnie Spector was being trapped in phil specter's house you know she would write something like this like no paul mccartney i didn't want to turn your offer down to go on tour you know and writing her own fan fiction to deal with her own instabilities and you know yeah because i'm just i'm comparing (laughs) i'm such a jerk i'm comparing the tragedy that ronnie specter had of her own abusive marriage to the idea that kelly is an imposter for the fluffy pop group NSYNC. I'm going to hell. No, I'm loving this. Do we actually know much about Kelly Baldwin? No, but perhaps that is time... There is time for us in the future to investigate yeah. Kelly yeah, yeah, Baldwin. Yeah. Is she related to Alec? There's so many people in that family already. I know. Yeah. On that note... Welcome to this segment of Ray of Blight. You are in for quite a treat. For this particular episode, we have we're on location with the talent scout that found the infamous InSync fan fiction binder. So the particular talent scout, um, that which we're in their office today on location, <laughs> is Sarah Sterling. Yay! Hey, thank you. So Sarah, won't you tell us the story of how you found the amazing InSync fan fiction binder? Oh yes, you can. Sure. Um, well, I basically go to thrift stores insanely frequently, so. Um, I was in a thrift store, but there's not oh, there's nothing really remarkable about that part of it. 
But I do remember which thrift store it was. Um, it was Unique Thrift Store on Diversity. Um, and I was looking at their books um, when I spied on the bottom shelf this InSync binder. Um, and it was, you know, it, like even on the side of the binder, it was clearly an InSync binder. So I kind of looked at it um, to make sure there wasn't anything interesting inside because there could have been like some kids doodles or homework or something, um, which I always like to find at the thrift store. Um, but what I actually did find inside was of course the amazing, like hundreds of pages of fan fiction written um, from the perspective of um, a young girl who fancies herself the girlfriend of, is it Joey? Um, member of NSYNC least attractive member possibly um and so i felt very excited and i actually looked around to make sure there wasn't another binder um because when i find something really amazing at the thrift store my first reaction is to like want something more right away instead of just appreciating that i've just found something incredible um so i obviously bought that um how much did you pay for it um i think it was like Two ninety nine or something like that. What's the actual retail price? <laughs> the actual retail value, I'm not sure. We'd have to like try to auction it off, which I, you know, doubt we should do. We are not on location at the Antiques Roadshow. That is for the <laughs> next podcast. Please stay tuned and see if we get kicked off of PBS. I digress. Please I think continue. you know the the value of the InSync fan fiction probably can't be measured. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> is, this, is this making you a bit weepy? A little bit, yeah. It's just making me sort of emotional, and and but not in a negative way. You know, I'm just full of emotion about it. Mm. Um, the Portuguese call that saudade. Saudade. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll take your word for it. Um, I hope you, you know it's the Portuguese word. It's not mine. But you're telling me what it means, and you could be lying. You know, so you could be like getting me to agree to something really embarrassing. Um, that I'm experiencing. I can't do that. I can't lie to my public. Okay, good. I'm glad you have integrity. So I had a moment where I like deeply appreciated the magic of the thrift store. I bought the thing and brought it home and read it. Um, I don't think I read it in one sitting. It is very long, but I did read it pretty quickly. Realized that I had to give it to Liz. And um, I think I gave it to you for it like there happened to be a convenient like special occasion actually i i hoarded it from you for a little while now that i'm talking about this i remember like i didn't say a word about it and then i gifted it to you it might have been for your birthday or it might have been for like the uh, holidays that come at the end of the year i can't remember mm -hmm. was, how long did you hoard it for i think it was a couple of months at least wow how did you keep your mouth shut the whole time um, I'm very good at keeping secrets, actually. Like, if somebody tells me that something is a secret and, like, don't tell anyone, I'll just forget what it was. Like, I have a lot of inhibition around revealing, like, secrets. So I just, like, put it out of my mind, but I was secretly very excited to give it to you. But I definitely couldn't ruin the moment at all by, like, hinting about it or giving it to you at random. Like, it had to be, like, full build-up, like... Um, I definitely remember your reaction when you received it. <laughs> well, I don't even remember my reaction. I probably was like, what? This is amazing. I, no, I, I think you were like more like silently astounded. Like you couldn't believe what you were looking at. 
Which is which is my like I think how I reacted too because first you're just looking at this goofy in sync binder and you probably thought that that was the gift you know how wrong you were how wrong you were I mean it was it's only the cover of you know it's a can't nice... judge a binder by its cover right no, I although mean, ironically in this case you can right True. it's exact I mean it it doesn't say in sync fan fiction on the cover but it definitely says in sync. No, you couldn't believe what you were seeing. And, and I think you said something like, do you know this is fan fiction? And I said, yes, I do. Um. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this is like the Pentagon Papers or something. Right. Like, do you know are this you is... Aware? Are you aware of how important these documents are? <laughs> it's confidential. <laughs> yeah. We can't let the public know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea of who this person is? There, there were like a few random notes in the margins yeah. of, the, of some of the pages, which is weird because there are no like words crossed out anywhere in the entire, as far as I remember, like there, it's like written exactly in like perfect handwriting without anything crossed out or like edited. So I always assumed that this was a recopied, you know, um, final draft. So it's surprising that there are random notes in the margins, like reminders to buy dog food and things like that. Um, and there, I don't remember what it was, but there was something that we had to go on. It was like the name of a school, maybe. Mm-hmm. So we tried to Google that, and we assumed that like the person's first name is the first name used in the fan fiction. Yeah. Um, and I think we came to kind of an inconclusive end there. Uh, like, we couldn't yeah. find much online that seemed like it was likely to be this Well, person. and that also, based on the time that NSYNC was popular, mm-hmm. meant that, you know, we speculated how old this person would be now. Right. And so, you know, the more time that elapses after something, the harder it is to, you know... Right. Well, also, when NSYNC was popular... There was the internet, but it was in the earlier days of the internet. Um, like, I think, right, when NSYNC right. was popular, it was probably around the year 2000. Like yeah, like late 90s. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the internet was just a new thing that wasn't really yeah um, fully developed yet. So a lot of stuff d- doesn't really have, like, a lot of web presence from that time. Like, a, pers- a like person who is in junior high might not have any web presence at all from those years, I think. I right. Mean, well, and the fact that this was in a binder and it was written and it wasn't on, like, live journal. Right, or, right. That's true, you know, too. Right. Who would write something out by hand like that for the most part? Someone anymore. that cares. Yeah, someone that cares, for yeah. sure. In cursive. Mm-hmm. And they don't teach... Cur- I've heard that they don't teach cursive in schools anymore. I've been hearing that, and I think that's bullshit because I love cursive. I hope people still can sign their names in cursive because that'd be weird if they couldn't. Right. They yeah, like, like you sign for like the, the package delivery. Yeah. And you, like, Do they just print rare. their name or make a squiggle? Or maybe the people don't even learn how to write anymore. They just like they have they like put do a hoof print. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I don't write talk. I pictures. Internet yeah. text text, text like for you paw print. I, I've seen a lot of people do X's and I've and I've seen a lot of people sign off in what's what, in kanji. In kanji, <laughs> yes, and Cyrillic. Cuneiform. <laughs> Cuneiform, yes, that's brilliant. 
Anyway, I, I just think I don't think this research has gone fallow, and we should not let it go fallow. With if we go and find this school's library, perhaps we could find yearbooks of the past time and get a rough estimate because it's only within a few years. You know, uh, it's it, it, NSYNC had a very yeah. ephemeral popularity. Yeah. So that's that's assuming that I'm even remembering that detail correctly. That it was a school, but I think that's right. Does yeah. That... Didn't we? And we f- called. Didn't we call somebody? No, we joked about how creepy it would be if we did. <laughs> <laughs> we should. I I will do it. Yeah. And I've got an out of state number, so it's great. Excellent. Yeah. You know, actually, what would be amazing is if the longer we did this segment. Someone actually heard it and came out and was like, and there there is a precedent set for this. And I'll tell you what it is. So like the first or second issue of Found Magazine, um, they had this thing about like the booty mix tape where they found a tape that was just like some kid doing rap that's like booty, booty, booty. (laughs) And they either they like maybe they talked about it in one of the one issue or maybe they like they do a lot of like touring shows with it and like. Some kid came forward. He's like, "Holy shit, that was my tape that I made." And the, and so and so then they struck up like this relationship, and he started making like music for Found Magazine or whatever. Wow, wow, and wow. and then at some point, we were selling the booty mixtape at at Quimby's. Why yeah. have you never discussed the booty mixtape? I don't know because I, I forgot actually. I like big booty mixtapes. All right, so back to the binder. Uh-huh. You said you. Found it at which thrift store? Um, unique thrift store on Diversity. Like, it's Diversity just west of Pulaski. This is Chicago. And and roughly, you found this around what date? I gave it to you. What year was it even? 2012. And you'd had it for some months before that. So possibly in 2011. Possibly. Do you remember which section of the store? It was, it was definitely the book section. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was in with the books. Did you ever ask anyone working there, like, do you know where this came from? No, because my assumption is that if anybody... Knew that you had it, they wouldn't let you have it. Oh, no, I don't think they would not let me have it, because that would be... That would be above and beyond in terms of, like, moral scrupulousness um, from somebody who's just, like, working at a thrift store where they sell whatever they have, you know? Yeah. Um, But I, I just figured that, like... The only reason it was there in the book section was because nobody had ever looked at it, really, um, who works there. Um, so, no, I didn't inquire about it. It was more just, like, I had this feeling like someone was going to take it from me, like, which was only because it was so amazing. Of course, nobody was going to take it from me. But I was like, just have to get it and pay for it and get it out of the store, and then it will be mine. Right, yeah, I understand that. Mm-hmm. You're, it's like... Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Just you know. Yeah. Don't just. Yeah. Exactly. Don't give away. Um, what you have here. Yeah. It's kind of like when I bought my nun painting from Village Discount Outlet. So I had the nun painting in my shopping cart, and um, I had this feeling like nobody take my nun painting. That's my nun painting, and somebody. Somebody, I had this like conversation with somebody about it. <laughs> Can you put that in a huge like wall of sound reverb? Yeah, that's exactly. Actually, I was thinking of making that into a sample, uh-huh. like, like putting it over dance music. Like, oh, nobody take my nun painting. Like, Can we say it together? Ringtone. Nobody take my nun painting. That's my nun painting. Not your nun painting. <laughs> um. So it was in my shopping cart. So I had this conversation with this woman 
Um, it, I'm not sure there should be like a word for this type of misunderstanding. Um, I'm sure the Portuguese have something. <laughs> or the Germans. Oh, yes. So basically, like, I, my, my strong assumption was that everybody would appreciate this non-painting in the same spirit as I appreciated it in, which was, like, a, a humorous spirit. Um, like, this is a funny item to have. Um, so, but it is, you know, it's a pretty well-done painting. Like, I certainly couldn't paint a nun as, as well as whoever, you know, did this painting. Um, so this woman came up to me and said, that is a great painting. And I was like, I know, isn't it? And she was like, that is just a really, really nice painting. And I was like, right? And, and I think, like, again, she was just appreciating it sincerely. And I was kind of, like, smirking, like, isn't it, like, the most ironic, you know, silliest um, painting for a person to have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Did you notice it was, like, a class difference? You're like, um, you're like, I'm the sociologist coming in to make fun of how ironic <laughs> you low class. <laughs> I'm the graduate. You the college kid. Yes. <laughs> I don't see how that was relevant here. I don't I'm know sorry. if that was a class difference. It might, there might have been a cultural difference in that this might have been someone who is religious and would put a painting of a nun in her home for a completely different reason. <laughs> is there anything else that... You'd like to add? The only other comment that comes to mind about the NSYNC binder that, that I found interesting when I read it is that, so the person who wrote it, I don't know how old she is, obviously, but I would guess when she wrote it, she was maybe like... 42. <laughs> I mean, she was like probably pre-prebescent, so like maybe 12, but she's in that range, 12 to 14, probably. Um, Maybe she was in like a gifted program, and this was her right, like, right. Her, this like, was her thesis, thesis for her junior high graduation or something. Um, but she um, has a lot of fantasies that you know. I mean, the whole thing is a fantasy because it's fan fiction. But um, she, I think, the nature of her fantasies is interesting. Like there are a lot of fantasies in which Joey buys her a lot of clothes. And then she, like, describes the clothes in great detail. Mm -hmm. um, and then they sound like they're just sort of, like, clothes from the Gap, like, very ordinary clothes. From the Baby Gap. <laughs> Possibly Baby Gap. It's, but it'll say, like, and, and then he bought me a beautiful ivory-colored sweater with whatever, with, like... Um, bone-colored buttons or something. <laughs> so specific. <Yeah. laughs> um, so that was, I thought, somewhat endearing in a way because these are the fantasies of, like, a junior high school girl. Like, I don't think that adult women have fantasies about their boyfriends buying them sweaters. Um, I would hope not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there, I think, are two spots... Um, like this person seems like um, very reluctant to talk about any sort of like sexual encounter um, and I don't think there is any sexual encounter in the fan fiction but there is there are a couple of instances in which Joey kisses her deeply it says he kissed her deeply and I think that's as as sexual as she can get in her stage of development um, which is also very amusing because as kid-friendly as NSYNC, you know, was marketed to be, they're all full-grown adults. Like, they don't they don't just kiss deeply, you know? Right. I think they do everything, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a 12-year-old 
doesn't want to talk about it or think about it. Yeah. It's overwhelming. This was like wish fulfillment in a way that's different than steamy fan fiction mm-hmm. written on websites, you know. Right. Harry Potter erotica. Right. You know, like, like. Harry Potter erotica. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like, like that sort of, I love this, this sort of like stereotypical arc. He comes to me in a limo and picks me up. Mm-hmm. And introduces me to the rest of the band. Right. And, you know, we have a, a special moment. Right. We have a special moment. Justin walks in and I tell him that, like, he could do better than Brittany. And that, like, she's, you know, she doesn't treat him right. And he thanks me for the heart to heart, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we go to... It's like what, what a girl who's 12 thinks adults act like. Right. And also, I think, like, there's definitely a sort of, like, she doesn't know to be self-conscious about certain things. Like, how ridiculous it is to detail a shopping spree that your boyfriend took you on. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that's that's one thing besides the obvious that I found noteworthy about this fanfiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well... I, for one, thank you very much for finding oh. this binder and also yes. for agreeing to have us ha- have the discussion about this. Yeah. Thank you. I thank you for being some of the few people in the, the world who would appreciate the Insync fanfiction binder and give it its, its due <laughs> we you are know, the attention. Lucky ones. We are yes, the lucky all, ones. We're all touching hands. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much thank you very for much. being on the show. Thanks for having me. Nobody take my own painting, that's my own painting. Nobody take my own painting, that's my own painting. Nobody, nobody, nobody take my own painting, that's my own painting.